0: Thanks for tuning in to our Cypress Church podcast. To learn more about our church, visit our website at cypresschurch.net and join us for our Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. Subscribe on iTunes for more. Hey, good morning. Wow, am I as loud as I feel? Nice. I like being loud. Hey, my name's uh, Rich. I'm the pastor of Family Ministries here, and uh, I want to welcome you this morning um, you've probably heard, if you've been coming for a while, Pastor Mike or some of the other pastors talking about the sons and daughters of Cyprus. And uh, our sons and daughters of Cyprus are those kids who are now adults who've gone through our Sunday school program, our Wednesday night program, our, our student ministries, and, um, and have graduated and moved on and are living their life for Christ. And We have some of our sons and daughters um, that are missionaries. They're out serving God across the the world and even locally uh, in the United States. We also have um, a lot of our sons and daughters of Cyprus are in the workforce and they're being a light where they work for Christ. And then I know that um, we've got some that are firemen. We've got uh, some that work at camps and today we're going to get to hear from one of our very own sons and daughters. It's going to be Ryan Holloman. He's a son. Yeah. So Ryan and his family started when Ryan was in fourth grade and he went up through our, he went to Sunday school and then he started coming to youth group. As a matter of fact, for several years, Ryan was in my small group. I got to watch Ryan take his faith and just grow and become the man of God that that God had, plan- had planned for him. And it's been a privilege and an honor to watch. Um, Ryan is now the lead pastor of Garden Grove Friends Church. I know, it's amazing. See, I, in my mind, Ryan's still 19 or 20. But something happened as we were talking this morning. It was 14 years ago that he graduated. And I don't know how he got so old when I stayed <laughs> right there at 31. 31. So, anyway, I do. We guys welcome Ryan Holloman.
1: Well, good morning, Cyprus. Good morning. It's good to be in worship with you all, not just the church gathered here, but also the church tuning in with the live stream. And a special shout out to the uh, San Clemente Beach crew that are down there today streaming on the beach. So, hey to you guys. Uh, I am excited to be in worship with you all this morning, like Rich was talking about. uh, Whether you know me or not, this church and this community, this people will always hold a special place in my heart within the kingdom of God. This is where uh, I grew up in faith and where I was poured into by men and women throughout this church, and it's fun to see many of them here today. And they helped shape me into the disciple. Of Jesus that I am, and so i 'm so grateful for that and it 's one of those things where uh, when you go home after being along or after being gone for a long time, uh, you get all of those nostalgic feelings, and so I was teasing them, and as I was walking through this morning all the halls there 's not a room or a doorway or an into this campus that doesn't hold for me some beautiful memory of childhood or my teen years, which were just a disaster in itself. And yet coming back, it's so fun to see. And so I, I walk through these hallways and I remember being in Sunday school. And I remember being in youth group. And uh, I noticed that if you go outside of room two oh six, right by those single use restrooms, you'll notice that there's a chunk of drywall that doesn't look like the rest. And I put that there when I was in high school. I put myself through that drywall. So I forever left my mark on this campus, whether you know it or not. And just going through the halls, and and this is where I met my wife for the first time, or one of the first times, she walked in the room and sat right in that chair. And I looked right down the aisle, and I thought, man, I'm gonna ask that girl out. And sure enough, it turned into marriage and, and a beautiful family. And so just a little bit about me before we dive in. Yeah, you can clap for her. And so my wife, uh, Taylor, and I, we've been married for almost nine years. Uh, We have three children, uh, Carson, Camden, and Kennedy, and so they are over in Kitch Church right now, and I pray they're doing less damage to the drywall than I did as a kid, Uh, but I'm excited for them to be here. In addition to that, though, uh, I do get the privilege to serve as the lead pastor at Garden Grove Friends. So my job is I get to cast vision. I'm the lead teacher there, and I get to lead the staff. And it's just a privilege to be there, but also to come and visit and be with you all this morning. Uh, And so, as we turn to scripture, let's go to Psalm 146. Uh, This is the final week of the summer mixtape series here at Cypress Church. Uh, And when Pastor Justin invited me to come and preach, he gave me uh, an open book and said, "Pick a psalm and preach from it." and I chose Psalm 146 for our time today, and and I'll explain a little bit about why we're here in the text this morning. Uh, One of the things that was a transition for me in ministry, as I finished my internship here at Cyprus after I finished college, uh, then I began just a short while later uh, ministering in Garden Grove at Garden Grove Friends. And so even though we're just a few miles down the road, uh, there was a huge cultural and ministerial shift of contexts. And so I had the task of trying to help our church understand and how to negotiate bringing the gospel to the uniqueness of our specific neighborhood. It was a neighborhood that I didn't grow up in. Even though it's only a few miles down the street, uh, it's a lot different than the neighborhoods I grew up in here in Cyprus. And so one of the things about our neighborhood over in Central Garden Grove is uh, it is very culturally and racially diverse. Uh, But not just that, there's also a vast difference in socioeconomics within our city, where we have the west of our city that looks a lot like Cyprus, and then in the middle where we're at, uh, a lot of our neighborhood are low-income families or lower middle-class families at best even. And so it's all these families, a lot of immigrant families in our neighborhood too, cultural diversity, and yet on top of all of that, our neighborhood is plagued by epidemics of homelessness and drug abuse. And drug abuse in particular is just running rampant in our neighborhood. And so much so that even already, we're only in August, and there have been three drug homicides in our neighborhood alone. And just like last month or a couple weeks ago, one of them was right across the street from our house where a dealer was shot and killed in his driveway as he was being robbed. And so we look at our neighborhood... We look at our city, and one of the things that the Lord has been kind of putting on my heart and our church's heart is how do we bring the gospel to a neighborhood that is plagued with social and economic injustice? How do we bring the gospel and not separate it because we can't do that, but how do we, with the whole gospel, bring that to our neighborhood and engage in a very real and meaningful way those social and economic (laughs) injustices? And it's so born out of that that we turn our attention to Psalm 146. And so I encourage you to turn with me there, and let's read along. Scripture says this, "'Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing.'" But blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. Lord Jesus, we love you. And this morning, as we turn our attention to your word, we come in full submission to it, And we ask, Lord Jesus, that through the power and the presence of your Spirit, that you would move us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us in such a way that we might be reoriented in faithfulness to you and to your heart and to your mission. And Lord, my prayer for this beautiful place and this people is that they would catch a vision individually and even as a community about what it means to be Cypress Church here, to engage the social and economic injustices in this city and in their neighborhoods. And Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your word, and we turn our heart's attention to it now. And Lord Jesus, we pray all these things in your name, and all God's people pray. Amen. So church, here's where we're going to go this morning. We're looking at Psalm 146, and what we're going to do first is kind of take this big snapshot of what it is that the psalmist is trying to explain. He's presenting a theological truth in the text, and from that truth comes from it some revelation about God, about who he is, about his heart, about his mission. And then from that, my prayer is that we would be challenged, that as God reveals his heart, as God reveals his mission, that we might be moved in faithfulness to join him in that. And so as we begin with the text, let's look at verse 1. The psalmist repeats uh, multiple times, but he invites his listeners to praise the Lord. And so uh, for those of the grammar geeks in the congregation, when you look at the Hebrew or even the Greek translation of this, uh, the mood or the tense that this is written in, these first several verses, is the imperative. And the imperative is simply, uh, it's an invitation or borderline a command And so the psalmist is saying, hey, come with me. Let's let's praise the Lord. And now let's look at verse 5, which is the end of the first section. He says, let's praise the Lord. And then verse 5, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. So his whole point here is is to move his listeners to do two things. Praise the Lord and put your hope and your trust in him. That's what all this is about. Move in a direction that would lead you to do those things. And then verses three and four in the middle of section one is the opposite what not to do. And we look at those. It says, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. And so the psalmist is saying, Hey, Put your trust and your praise in the Lord. Don't put it, don't put your trust, your hopes, anything in people, in movements, in organizations, in political parties, in governments. All of those things share one thing in common. They're going to end. And when they end, your trust, your praise, and your hope is going to end with them. Therefore, praise the Lord. Put your trust in him. And verse 6 is The crucial point that everything hangs on, verse 6. Let's look at that. He says, He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. And right here, the most important phrase He remains faithful forever. Everything else that we put our trust in, everything else that we put our praise in and towards is going to end. The only thing, the reason that the Lord is superior is because he remains faithful forever. And then the rest of the passage from there, verses 7 through 10, this is where the psalmist says, okay, I've made this claim in verse 6 that the Lord remains faithful forever. And now let me explain to you why that is. And so when you look at this in verses seven through nine, you're gonna find this list of eight things that the psalmist gives that God speaks. And here's why it's important for us to tune into these because God is making a claim. I'm faithful forever, I'm worthy of your trust, and I'm worthy of your praise. And now I always encourage our congregation, whenever we encounter something that God says in Scripture, is why does he say what he says? Right? God is intentional and he is specific. Why does he say what he says? Why is it that when God makes a claim that he's faithful forever, he lists these eight things? Seven out of eight of those things all have to do with social and economic injustices and God's response and his heart for those things. And so you and I have got to ask the question, why, when questioned about how he's faithful forever, God reveals to us his heart for social righteousness. And if that's where God's heart is, then I need to be there too. If God's heart is to deal with social and economic injustice, then I as his disciple and you as his disciple, we've got to be there with him. And my prayer this morning, really the the question that we're holding out from scripture in the midst of all of us, is how are you and I going to engage and respond to the injustice in our corners of the kingdom? What am I going to do about the injustice where I live? What am I going to do about that injustice in my neighborhood? If I'm going to profess to be a disciple of Jesus and his heart and his mission is there in those things, how am I going to join him in that work? And so as we begin, let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke 4 is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in verses 16 through 21, we find Jesus at the synagogue in Nazareth. And he has the invitation, the opportunity to open up from the scroll of Isaiah and to read and to share. And listen to what Jesus chooses to share. Again, why does God say what he does? Let's look at this, verse 16 of chapter 4. It says, he went to Nazareth, of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus has the opportunity at the beginning of his ministry to let everyone know what he's about. And again, you and I have got to ask the question of all the things that Jesus could proclaim for himself as he begins his ministry, why does he choose these words? And and also significantly, he could have stopped at the first part of verse 18. He could have said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. I have been sent and I'm here to proclaim the good news. And he could have even pointed to the cross and said, I have been sent to proclaim that good news that there is a way to be forgiven of your sins, there is a way to be restored to the Father, that you might spend eternity with him. He could have given us that piece of his mission, and yet he doesn't just stop at preaching the gospel. He adds three things. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to set the oppressed free. The same thing that Psalm 146, all of those are there. And they've been there all throughout scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord has revealed his heart, nothing's changed. He's always been about dealing with social and economic injustice. That has always been a core component of who God is. And so when Jesus comes and he performs his earthly ministry, He answers for us the question, God, what would you do if you were here? Show me, what what would you do if you were walking amongst me? How would you live out your character? And then Jesus points us to it. He says, nothing's changed. It's always been the same. I'm here to preach the good news to the poor. I'm here to preach the fact that there is salvation in my name. But more than that, in addition to that, I'm here to set the oppressed free. I'm here to give sight to the blind. And Jesus shows us that we cannot separate those things. And let's look at John 14 now. In John 14, this is where, uh, we, where Jesus enters into what we call his farewell discourse, which is where he's getting ready to return to the Father, and he gives a chunk of teaching to his disciples, And in John 14, Jesus makes some statements about his disciples and about the work that they're going to do and how it connects to the work that he has done. So let's pick it up in John 14, verse 10 through 12. Verse 10 says this, don't you believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And as I read that and I think about When Jesus says, you're going to do the works that done, he's talking about Luke 4. He's talking about Psalm 146. He's talking about all the things that God has consistently revealed throughout Scripture that his heart is about and that he's at work doing and performing. And the question I come away with from this passage in John 14 is when we look at verse 12, what if you and I were to see that as an expectation of Jesus, not a suggestion of Jesus? That he's not just suggesting to his disciples that they continue and do the work that he's done. But what if you and I took it as, no, he expects me to be doing these things. There's no way that I can claim to be a disciple, that I can pursue my own worship life and neglect God's heart for social and economic injustice. For me to delineate the gospel in such a way is to abandon the gospel entirely because at no point in scripture does Jesus ever give us a hint that that's okay. For him, the expectation is that his disciples will be doing the work that he has done, which leads us to that question. What are you and I doing about the injustice in our corners of the kingdom? How are we continuing the work that Jesus has laid out? Because sometimes we fall into that trap where I want to piecemeal the gospel in a way that I'm good with. I want to find a great church community. I have a great church community. If my church is listening, I have a great church community. I want to have that. I want to have a place where I'm serving and using my gifts like all of you. I want to have a great life group. I want to have a great small group and connection. But it's got to be more than just I come on Sundays and I get the good feels at church and then I get together with my small group and we have an awesome holy huddle during the week and then that's where I stop. It's got to be more than that. And the day I allow it to become that and that alone is when I and when you enter into some dangerous waters as a disciple of Jesus. And this is not something new that God's people have been doing. Let's look at Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is a time in Israel's history that ain't so good. And it's, it's being written to God's people because they have failed to consistently live out what it means to be his people. They're living in such a way that no longer reflects the reality of who God is and the heart that he has. And so, through the prophet, God sends some strong words to them, some condemning words. And I think they'd be helpful for us to understand for when we want to try and piecemeal the gospel in such a way that we're okay with, that abandons God's heart for social and economic injustices. Let's look at Isaiah 58, starting in verse 2. It says, for day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers." Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? So God's people come to him and, and with some complaints. I'm worshiping, God. I'm, I'm exercising and practicing the things you have called me to do in my worship life. I'm fasting. Why don't I feel like you're drawing near to me? I, I, I'm taking the Sabbath, and yet I don't feel like you're here. You're not. I'm humbling myself, and you're not listening to me. And then God says, I'm not listening to you because I'm over here. Is this what you think I've called you to? You think I've called you to this, that you would just fast, that you would just practice the Sabbath, and yet you practice all sorts of injustice yourself? I'm over here. Here's the fast. Here's the worship life that I want for my people. I want them to set the oppressed free. I want them to break the yokes that are on people's backs. I want them to join me where my heart's at. And yet when you and I try to shrink the gospel to just my discipleship, do I have my worship life? Do I have my community? A- am I receiving the things, and yes, maybe practicing the things that I'm comfortable with, but I'll stop there. As if joining God in engaging social and economic injustice, as if pursuing social righteousness is somehow an a la carte menu. I get to pick and choose. And when we do that, when we enter into that territory, these are the kinds of words that the Lord has for us. That's not what I've called worship. So you wonder why you're not feeling it? You wonder why you think you're doing the right things and and I'm not near it's not because I'm hiding from you. I've told you plainly where I'm at. I'm there with the oppressed. I'm there with the socially and the economically downtrodden. I'm there because my heart compels me to be there. Your heart is compelling you over here to settle for something so vastly different than what I've proclaimed to you all throughout scripture. You and I can't We don't have the opportunity or the privilege to separate the gospel and our discipleship from social righteousness. It's not left to us to decide. And when we do that, we enter into some pretty dead religion and it's dangerous territory. Let's look at John 11. We preached on this a few weeks ago at our church. We're working through a gospel of John series right now. And we preached on John 11. And John 11, we're going to pick it up in verses 32 through 36. John 11 is the narrative of Lazarus' death. Now, Lazarus was a personal friend of Jesus. Jesus knew Lazarus. He knew his sisters, Mary and Martha. They were people who were dear to him in a unique way. And, and Jesus comes, and he sees that Lazarus has died, and he sees the grief in Mary and Martha and all their family, and the Jewish people who are gathered there. He sees the grief. And the reason we're looking at this text in particular is because death is the greatest injustice of all. Death is something that that robs God's people and God's creation of the beauty and the majesty and the perfection that he originally desired us to have. Death broke all of that. And when we talk about injustices, those seven things that the psalmist gives us in verses seven through nine, what those are, the reason those are injustices, is because they're not heavenly realities. They are not there in heaven where God's will and God's authority is perfectly obeyed. They're not there. There's no poverty in heaven, there's no oppression in heaven, there's no bondage, there's no hunger. Those things are inconsistent with the heart of God. And so that adds meaning and dimension to the Lord's prayer. When we follow in the model of Jesus and we pray like him, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done here as it is in heaven. I want your will done here because your will does away with injustice when it's fully realized. And so as your people, that's my prayer And that's what I'm working for, to do away with this injustice. And that's where we see Jesus in verse 32. Let's pick up the text. It says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. When Jesus comes here and he sees firsthand the devastation that the injustice of death has wreaked on people that he loves, he responds in a certain way. Let's look at verse 33. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. Now, in the original language, in the Greek, again, for my grammar geeks, uh, there's two meanings to this word. And if you've ever translated anything, if you speak more than one language, you know that when you translate, you have to choose one of those meanings. And so, most translators and commentators have gone with what we read in the text that Jesus, when he sees the injustice, he sees the grief, he sees what sin has brought on his good creation. He was deeply moved, he was troubled in his spirit. And that is the first definition, and it is biblically accurate to say that, that Jesus sees it and he grieves at this, he grieves at injustice. And when I read that, it begs the question of me. When was the last time that an injustice actually broke my heart? Like genuinely broke me. Not just, oh, that's a bummer. I'm glad it's not happening in my family. Or I'm glad that's not me. But when was the last time injustice in my corner of the kingdom broke my heart in such a way that I would respond like Jesus did. And for a lot of us, if you're kind of searching through your minds right now and you can't think of anything, that's probably a troubling place to be as a disciple of Jesus. Just speaking honestly, if you and I are at a place where injustice doesn't break our hearts, it doesn't cause us to grieve with the heart of God, where have we, where have we come? In our neighborhood, there's a house. And everyone in our church, we call it the red house. And the red house is six doors down from my house because I live right next to the church campus. Six houses down, there's the red house. And I hate the red house with everything in me because the red house is what's called a boarding care, which is pretty much where a slumlord owns it and he rents it out to anybody, no questions asked, whoever needs a place to stay which, of course, attracts every problem you can imagine for our neighborhood. Every drug dealer in the neighborhood lives there. Every drug user lives there. And, and these people who live there, they spread out through the neighborhood. And they wreak havoc on the families of our neighborhood, many of whom are immigrant families lower class families, people who, they're not going to go to the city. They're not going to raise concerns to the city. They're going to stay quiet while these dealers roam the neighborhood on their bicycles and deal drugs in front of our houses. Meth is such an epidemic in our neighborhood. So my kids grow up, we live on the main street, and my kids at the age of six and five know how to spot someone on meth because they walk in front of our house, 40 times a day screaming at people talking to themselves they deal their drugs in front of my house i hate that red house and we have a couple brothers in our church who live at that red house now they're recovering addicts themselves and the county has transitioned them and put them there which i got a bone to pick with the county on that regard that's a separate issue But they put these guys in the house, and they find themselves surrounded by dealers, surrounded by guys who are doing drugs in the hallway outside of their rooms. And one guy in particular, last year it was, we have a a gentleman on our staff who is an outreach coordinator, and, and his name is David Sparks. His job is to go in the neighborhood, and he helps to resource For people in the neighborhood to help them transition from homelessness, to help them find recovery programs, to help them find food, whatever they need, he helps us get them what they need. And so he was telling me that last year he went to visit our brother who was living at that house. And he came back to me after that visit and he said, Hey, Ryan, I think we should pray for our brother down the street. Uh, His roommate last week stole all of his stuff, every single thing he owns, and he sold it for drugs. And so now our brother is down the street, and he's got nothing, and he's been like this for a week. And so I I went down the street, six houses down from where I live and where I work, and I knock on his door, and like I said, as I go down the hallway, I have to meander and make my way through everybody doing drugs in the hallway. And I get to his door, and I knock on it, and he opens up his door. And as I look into the room, there's this dark dirty room and there's a single light bulb screwed into the ceiling. And as I walk into the room, my brother has a smile on his face. He's got the shirt on his back and he's got a single hand towel left and it's hanging up on a hook on the wall. his, His roommate even stole his bed sheets and his underwear. He's so desperate for drugs. And my brother's standing there, and he welcomes me into his room, and I see that, and for one of the first times in my life, I actually, genuinely, my heart broke with God's. And, and if you don't know me, I don't cry a whole lot. My wife can attest to that. I don't cry very much. And I remember leaving my brother, walking the six houses down to my house, leaving my brother in this condition that makes the third world look like a resort. And I walk down to my house. I come in the front door in the middle of the workday and I just start bawling, bawling my eyes out because six houses down from me, there's one of my brothers who's living, suffering injustice. And here I am and I had no idea about it. And so our church rallied and and we've got him out of that disastrous place and, and we've gotten him into some better housing. And now he still worships with us. And he's making great strides in life. And I'll forever remember that day I knocked on his door because that was one of those times when I read Jesus say that he was deeply moved and troubled. That's what I will forever remember is that picture of opening that door and seeing my brother stand in that room. And my heart broke with God. But sad to say that doesn't happen all too often in my life. A lot of the times I'm numb to the injustice that I see all around me. I'm numb to it, or I tune it out. I don't focus on it. I'm just doing my thing. Jesus' heart grieves at that injustice. But the second translation for that word is just as applicable. And it's not grief, but it's, it's deeply moved in anger. That when God sees injustice, it does not just break his heart, it enrages his heart like in an angry, violent way. And you and I don't like to think of Jesus like that all too often. We like tame Jesus. We like to imagine Jesus as the comforter who's welcoming the little children. And indeed, that is Jesus. But Jesus also has got anger. He's got a lot of it. It's righteous anger at injustice. And all too often, you and I, we don't reflect that heart of Jesus. I don't get too angry about injustice. I'm like, ah, that's a bummer. I wish that somebody would do something about that. But not just when was the last time my heart broke with God's over injustice, but when was the last time I got angry with God towards that injustice? When was the last time that I prayed like Psalm 7 Verse 6 says, arise, Lord, in your anger, rise up and rage, or rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, and decree justice. When was the last time God's people in suburbia prayed that God would rise up in anger and just start dealing out justice? We don't do that. Yet God is angry about these things. God hates these things. And he's waiting for his church to get angry with him about these things, that we might be moved to do something about the injustice we see. I hate the red house and I hate the drugs that are in our neighborhood because everybody addicted to drugs will steal anything they can from any family or any business to get their next score. That's what addiction does. And so our church gets broken into all the time. I don't even know what number of laptop I'm on because they keep breaking into my offices and stealing my stuff. They break into our campus and they steal all of our worship equipment. They will steal anything to feed that addiction and the dealers in our neighborhood will gladly keep exchanging it. And then two years ago, somebody broke into our youth room Now, our students come from families and backgrounds where they don't have a whole lot of stuff. So the TVs that we have and the video games that they play, while those are not spiritual tools, they mean something to our students. And so a couple years ago, somebody came in and they broke in at night and they stole all the stuff from our youth building. And one of the other pastors and I came in the next morning and I saw that and I just got angry. I'm so tired of the dealers and the users breaking in and stealing our stuff, selling it to get one more score. And I'm tired of it. And I remember that day getting angry in partnership with God saying, what are we going to do about this? Because I'm tired of them stealing our stuff. And the Lord blessed me that day because as that guy was breaking in that night, he happened to drop his bag of drugs as he was climbing in the window. So he dropped his bag that had his drugs and his needles in it, but he also had in there a citation from Garden Grove PD because just a couple days ago he had gotten picked up for misdemeanor drug possession. Obviously he didn't learn his lesson. But on top of that citation, there was his name. And I just got angry. And so I went after him. And I'm gonna find this guy. And so I started to go around to all the homeless feedings in Central Garden Grove because I know how this neighborhood works. I know he's at one of those feedings. And I started to go around to all the feedings and ask for this guy. Where is he? Who knows where he hangs out at? And I got an address for him. And I went to his house. My wife was gonna kill me for playing detective. And I went to his house, and it was a boarded up, empty house. Obviously, it was a fake address. But then I learned what he looked like. I've got a photo of him, and I'm hunting this guy. And I'm sitting in my dining room. My dining room looks out onto Magnolia, our main road. And just a couple weeks after that, I see him walking down the street right in front of my house. In my heart, I got so angry. And I ran down the street after him. Again, my wife is going to kill me. I promised her I would never do this again. But I ran down the street and I caught up with the guy. And I said, hey, man, I know you. You stole my stuff. You stole, you may not care, you may not remember it, but you stole from my students. And I want our stuff back. And so I grabbed him and I dragged him back to our church campus. And I said, I want my stuff. He's like, oh, I already sold it. I traded it to my dealer. I was like, call your dealer up. I want my stuff. And so he pulls out his phone and he calls his dealer. And I said, no, you put it on speaker. And lo and behold, his dealer just picks up the phone and he answers it. And he's like, hey, man, I, I need to get that stuff back that I traded you last week. Nah, man, you can't have it back. It's mine. I gave you the product. i like, no, 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 no. So I'm, I recognize the guy's voice and I grab the phone. I'm like, Zach, I know you, bro you live at that red house down the street. Like it's Ryan. I know you know me. Your, your guy stole my stuff. He stole from my students. I want my TV back. It's like, no, bro, you can't have it back. And he hung up the phone. It's like, no. So I get GGPD and we go down the street and then they do their thing. Cause they know this guy, of course, cause they've been to the red house a thousand times before. And they go in there and they get our stuff back. What's left of it. And our TV is still in that youth room today. Our students still play video games on that TV. Now, yeah, we've been broken into since then. And we're going to keep getting broken into. I know it. But I remember that time. Of Man, God, I'm going to get angry with you about this injustice. I'm tired of people stealing from everyone else to fuel their addiction. I'm tired of the dealers who ride their bikes and deal their drugs in front of my house. Right outside my daughter's window. I'm tired of it and I'm angry about it because I know God's angry about it. I know he gets angry when these guys go through the neighborhood and intimidate immigrant families. They yell at them outside of the Walmart to go home all the while asking them for money to buy more drugs with. I know God's heart gets angry about this. And when I read scriptures like this, it begs of me the question, What am I going to do about the injustice in my corner of the kingdom? What are you going to do about the injustice in your corner of his kingdom? Does your heart break with God about that injustice? Do you get angry about that injustice? Not just angry for a moment and then let it go and move on with your life, but angry to a point where it would move you to do something about it. I'm not telling you to go in your neighborhood and start chasing down drug dealers. But you've got injustice where you're at. You've got it where you live. You've got it where you work. And you've got it where your family plays. There's injustice, social and economic, all around us. What are we as God's people going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Let's look at Matthew chapter 25. I went way over in first service. And I already apologized to Mike, and he let me come back up. So I'm going to do it again. <laughs> So Matthew chapter 5, our, our closing, our closing passage. Matthew 25, verse 31. This is where Jesus is talking about a time when he's coming back and he refers to himself as the king. Right? So he's putting on his boss pants and he's coming back. And he's gonna say and reveal to us expectation that he has of his people. Listen to what he says. Verse 31 of Matthew 25. And go and visit you. Then the king will reply Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When we encounter words of Jesus like that, if, if we ever walk away from a text like that and think that social righteousness and engaging in justice in our community is an option as a follower of Jesus, we're reading the text all wrong. It's not an option. There's no caveat. Uh, I understand, though, that you were busy raising your family. I understand, though, that you were busy trying to pay the mortgage. I understand that you are at the beginning of your career, and you have to put in more work, and then you're in the middle of your career, and, and it requires even more. I got it. You and I are great at coming up with excuses for Jesus about why, why we don't partner with him in his heart. In fact, we might even be experts at it. But when we encounter a text like this, Jesus makes it clear. There's no excuse he'll accept. What are you doing about the injustice? it's, It's not something that other followers of Jesus have to take care of. You and I. What are we doing about the injustice in our corner? of the kingdom. And I know it can seem overwhelming because there's a lot of injustice. Our, Our cities are plagued with it. And we can be overwhelmed by that task. And yet we can look in the smallest of places and find it. And then do something about it. You don't have to feed everybody in your neighborhood. You can't solve the world's problems. But that's no excuse for his people to throw our hands in the air and say, well, then what can I do? There's opportunity for us. You know the injustice in your corner. For me, I was telling my wife a couple weeks ago as I was thinking about this message and just how much I hate that red house. I know what mine is for next year in 2020. Man, I'm going to get that red house shut down. I'm going to get that thing closed down. And I'm going to watch. The dealers are going to go other places. I got it. But not in my neighborhood, not where these families are just trying to raise their kids not where my kids are going to grow up. So for me, when I think about injustice in my corner, it's that red house, and I'm going to do everything I can this year to get that place shut down. I don't care how many council meetings I have to go to and be that guy, I'm going to be that guy. My councilman's going to hate me by the end of the year. But I'm going to be like that widow who knocks on the judge's door, and I'm not leaving until I get justice. What's it going to be for you? Where's the injustice that you can engage in your corner of the kingdom? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord Jesus, we as your people, we affirm that your heart has always been for righteousness, has always been for social righteousness, that your people would be with you in that, that we would seek out the social and the economic injustices that plague our communities, that plague our cities, and that we would do something about it. And so, Lord, my prayer is that you would stir us up, that you would break our hearts, and that you would enrage us also, that we might move in faithfulness with you to be about your business. Bless us, Lord, as we partner with your heart in this. It's for your glory and for these things that we pray and all God's people said, amen.